<clears throat> Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The Old Testament reading this morning is from the 118th Psalm, verses 1 through 2 and 14 through 24, and may be found on page 554 of your pew Bible. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not give me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The word of the Lord. Our second lesson is Matthew's account of the resurrection. Reading from Matthew, the 28th chapter, verses 1 through 10. Let us continue to listen for God's word. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may find this a strange question that I'm going to ask you this morning. You may have been in church most of your life on Easter's. How many of you have been on an Easter worship service every year of your life unless you were sick? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. We were almost unanimous at the last service. It's amazing. So you've been here before. You know the story. You've read it probably in all the Gospels. Uh, but I want to ask you this morning, not what you know about the story, 
How do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? That's not a question Presbyterians typically ask. We're not that concerned ordinarily with feelings. We approach issues and topics, scripture and otherwise, ordinarily from a different perspective. So it's a strange question coming from your temporary rental rev preacher this morning. <laughs> you see, I've always been convinced that the resurrection of Jesus, like the other high holy day, the incarnation of God at, at Christmas and the birth of Jesus, that these two high holy days ought to be not simply a strong affirmation of a doctrinal truth or a historical fact, which they are, but it ought to be a great feeling if we understand what it's about to the extent that we can. So you see, you can know all the details of the stories from each of the accounts of the gospel, and they vary slightly from one to the other. You may have dealt with the resurrection theologically or philosophically or analytically or medically, perhaps even. But you can have all this or have done all this and really not feel the power, the wonder, the mystery, and the miracle of an Easter faith. Part of the problem for folks like us is that we've heard the story so often, we know it so well, that perhaps we are immune to the power and the wonder of it all. The poet Hanley Jones expresses this feeling this way, Too well, O Christ, we know thee. On our eyes there sits a film through which we see dimly, a frozen faith and stagnant memory. Thou art among us in the homely guise of one whose nearness like a shadow lies between our minds and his own mystery. And our familiar knowledge is to thee a second tomb from which thou dost not rise. Well, God forbid that our familiarity with the story would render the good news stale news, old news, news that doesn't move us or inspire us anymore. God forbid that we would lose the ability to feel as well as to affirm the power of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure for you, but for me, when I want to feel the wonder either of incarnation or of resurrection, I tend to go to the arts because the arts can both express our emotion and call forth emotions within us. Poetry, music, song, hymnody, painting, even dance. And the truth of the matter is, we Presbyterians are not very adept at expressing our emotions or even sometimes recognizing what they are. In fact, the truth of the matter is, we tend to be downright skeptical of anything that's a little bit too emotional. You know what I'm talking about. I don't care if it's another person, I don't care if it's a service of worship, if it's a hymn, if it's a sermon, if it gets a little too emotional, we start kind of tuning out. Because you know what we think? We think that if it's great in emotion, it's probably lacking in substance somehow. Right? The story is told about a preacher whose his wife was looking over his sermon notes. And on several paragraphs in his manuscript, he had the uh, initials P-W-I-V written beside the paragraph. And she asked him, is this a Greek word, honey? What does that mean in your notes? He says, no, that's just a message to me. It means point weak, increase volume. <laughs> and we tend to think that. You know, if it's a weak message and they're just covering it with emotion somehow, it's not really substantive. Um, in the Reformed family of faith and many other Protestants, uh, 
we are not trained or very well equipped to deal with the emotional. Um, we are trained in homiletics, the art of interpreting the scriptures, expounding the scriptures. We're trained in rhetoric, the art of persuasion. How do you talk to people and convince them to do something you think is God's will or that is right? And we typically don't do that through emotion. It's not been our recent practice anyway. Uh, but centuries ago, Aristotle argued that there were three ways primarily you could persuade a person to do something. Those three ways are ethos, logos, and pathos. Ethos. That refers to character or the, the, the respect that you have for the one who is preaching or teaching. If you really trust or admire this person that's talking, then they could probably persuade you to do something. If you don't feel like they feel, then you think, well, maybe I ought to feel like that because, after all, such a good person. I don't care if that person you respect is Dabo Sweeney or C.S. Lewis or a political figure or anything else. But if you trust that person and admire that person, they're likely to be able to persuade you. A second thing is um, logos, and that's our strong suit, really, as Presbyterians. That's the root word for logic. We want the faith to be intellectually defensible, rational. We want to appeal to people who are educated and articulate. So we study the scriptures. We require that our clergy and, and all of our people be educated in order to do this. That's one of the hallmarks. It's one of our strengths, but, of course, all of our strengths can become liabilities, too, right? And the third way, however, that we give little uh, credence to is pathos, emotion, passion. Are we not passionate about those things that are strong convictions, strong loves in our lives? I don't care whether it's sports or politics or whatever. We get passionate about the things that matter to us a lot and, well, we should get passionate. As I was watching the quarterfinals of the basketball uh, tournament last night, I was wondering, thinking about this sermon, well, what would it be like if the announcer came on and just instructed the fans? Now, we don't want any shouting or hollering in this basketball game. We want you to be reflective and analytical as you watch how the game is played. It just wouldn't go over, would it? Nor should it. But a lot of pre Presbyterians approach Easter, approach worship, approach the church that way. We're not supposed to feel too strongly about these things. Keep it in control because why? We can't control our emotions, and we are very nervous around things we cannot control. But it hasn't always been like this. In fact, historically, in the Presbyterian Church, pulpiteers that were trained in the Reformed faith were passionate in their preaching. The whole great revival, the great awakening, the camp meetings on the frontiers, most of those were led by people in the Reformed and, and Wesleyan faith that took education seriously. Uh, I'm convinced that if we divorce our feelings from our faith, then we will be the poorer for it. And we may end up with a very sanitized religion, but it's going to be probably boring to the extreme if our feelings aren't a part of what we believe and affirm. And so in today's Easter sermon, I'm just asking you a simple question. How does Easter feel to you? Strange indeed, but that's what I want you to think about. I don't want you to think about Easter or the resurrection theologically, philosophically. Don't want you to wonder medically what actually transpired back then. I just want to know how does it feel. 
When I was working on this message, I like to listen to XM radio songs from the 50s and 60s and 70s and later, but I was listening to the 60s, and some of you probably know what I'm going to say. There's a song that is the signature song of the 60s. 1965, some guys were hanging around playing music. There wasn't any sheet music, but there's this electric organ wailing in the background, and sharp stiletto uh, spirals on an old guitar. And this young 24-year-old boy singing in his distinctive and nasally voice, asking the questions, how does it feel, how does it feel to be on your own with no direction home like a complete unknown, like a rolling stone. Right. Like a rolling stone. But this morning I'm thinking about a rolling stone, but it's not the one that Bob Dylan immortalized in that song. What about that rolling stone in front of the tomb that the Marys saw that morning? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Wouldn't you hate to be known as the other Mary? Uh, Seems like they could have done better with the other Mary, whoever she was. But they was, went to the tomb expecting that Jesus would be safely buried. The ground begins to move. An earthquake occurs. An angel descends in this bright raiment and says to them, I know you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's been raised, as he told you. He will meet you in Galilee. Wow, what would that have felt like? If you're curious to know what that first Easter felt like or what it ought to feel like even today here in 2018, let me tell you that there are a couple of clues in our scripture lesson for today. When the two Marys went, heard the great news... We're told two things about them. Well, three things, really. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. Matthew records it that way. Mark says they were amazed. Luke says they were terrified. But all the gospel writers agreed that the first feeling of that first Easter was fear. And Jesus and the angel, first words out of their mouth is Fear not. They were scared to death. I would have been too. Because these thing, kinds of things don't happen or didn't happen, did they? Dead men come back to life. We're simply not emotionally equipped to handle something like that in our own lives and experience. Is it any wonder they left the tomb quickly? I would have left quickly. Some of you may know I have a hobby of collecting tombstone epitaphs, and I love to wander through old graveyards. There's some great ones in this area. Yesterday afternoon, I was over off of McCants, and there's a little graveyard over there called Ocean Grove, I think's the name of it. Part of it belongs to the Lutheran Church. Part of it's just an old community graveyard. And I was walking through looking for interesting epitaphs and tombstones, and I came upon one grave that kind of caught my attention. It was a young mother who died at age 35 in 1906. Her name was Elizabeth Frampton. The only reason I stopped and read it is because I know some Framptons in this church and in this community. But she was 35 years old, born in 1877, died in 1906. She had the graves of some children, little Frampton children around her. And she had been the wife of the man who'd been buried to her right. His name was Dr. James Frampton. He lived many years after Elizabeth died, and there's a wonderful tribute to her and poem on the back of the tombstone. But I was thinking last night, if I'd been walking through that graveyard and I got to her tomb, 
And an angel descended, and the ground shook. And the angel said to me, oh, Elizabeth isn't here. She's been raised. If you go over to Sullivan's Island, she'll meet you there. I would have left that graveyard rather quickly. <laughs> and I would not have headed south to Sullivan's Island. I would have headed north to Alaska. Uh, I would have been scared to death. Well, these women were scared to death too. Does Easter ever scare you? Does sometimes it cause you to tremble when you think about this whole experience? I think it would be good if we could somehow recapture that awe, that holy fear that accompanied the first Easter. I wish we could peer into the tomb as if for the first time, see the grave clothes lying there still folded. See an angel descend and announce that the one we're looking for has been raised from the dead and will meet us in Galilee. Actually, he met them before they got to Galilee, didn't he? Met them just a few moments after they left the tomb. An astonishing thing. A fearful thing. I wish sometimes we could have a little of that holy fear in us, that that is one appropriate emotion. One thing for us to feel on this Easter morning. Because, if, friends, if the Easter fact, if the resurrection doesn't feel a little bit like fear, then frankly I wonder if we have truly felt it. A second thing we're told is that they were not only afraid, but they were joyful. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all affirm that the resurrection of Jesus brought overwhelming joy to his disciples and friends. Their souls were flooded with astonishment and wonder and praise. One of my favorite expressions in the New Testament comes from Luke's account of the resurrection. And it's part of the Emmaus Road incident where the disciples who had had their eyes opened when they broke bread with Jesus, run back to Jerusalem to share, to share the good news with the disciples who were gathered together there. And as they were all together, Jesus appears to them. And what we read in Luke is that they disbelieved for joy. Isn't that a great expression? They disbelieved for joy. What you and I would probably say is, this is too good to be true. How can this possibly be true? They disbelieved for joy. And why the joy from the resurrection? Because if the resurrection is true, if Christ raised from the dead, was raised from the dead, as we affirm this morning and as I hope we're feeling this morning, then the face of death has been changed forever. And life as we know it on this planet has been unalterably turned upside down. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then that means God is stronger than Satan. It means love is more powerful than hatred. It means life matters more than death. If Christ has been raised from the dead, that means that God has put his stamp of approval on his son Jesus, and the life he lived has been validate, validated and vindicated. The life that you and I are called to live as well as we follow him. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then there are many stones that need to be rolled away from tombs where our better selves have for too long been kept concealed. If Christ has been raised from the dead, it is the most joyous news this old world has ever heard. So Easter 2018, how does it feel? How does it feel to you this morning? Words are inadequate to fully describe Easter. Like the incarnation, the resurrection can't be reduced to human speech or language. 
That's why the arts are so important. If you're not feeling the resurrection at the close of the service, after the hallelujah chorus is sung and after the Vidor's toccata from the fifth symphony is played, then ask someone to check your pulse when you get outside. If that can't move you, what can? My prayer for you, my prayer for me and us and all of my prayer for the world on this Easter morning is that we will be a little bit frightened because of the wonder of it all. But beyond that, there's great joy that will fill our souls. There's an anonymous poem entitled Hope. It starts off like this. He died and with him perished all that men hold dear. Hope lay beside him in the sepulcher. Love grew coarse cold, and all things beautiful beside died when he died. But then it concludes in these thrilling words. He rose, and with him hope rose, and life and light. Men said not Christ, but death died yesternight. And joy and truth and all things virtuous rose when he rose. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.